A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herleman, sponsored by Starburst. Starburst is a single platform to help you activate all your data, no matter where it lives. Check out our new Data Products for Dummies ebook to learn more about how your organization can utilize data products. To download your free copy, head on over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Episode 289, Building the Right Foundations for Generative AI. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Mei Xu, Head of Technology for APAC Digital Engineering at ThoughtWorks. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views on the episode. So in this, I'll use kind of Gen AI and LLMs to mean generative AI and large language models, just so you're not, uh, uh, you know, if you aren't familiar with exactly what those mean. So here are some key takeaways or thoughts from May's point of view. Number one, garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have good quality data across many dimensions and, you know, quote unquote, a solid data architecture, you won't get good results from trying to leverage LLMs on your data or really most of your data initiatives. You got to have that good quality, that good foundation. Number two, there are three approaches to LLMs. Train your own, start from pre-trained and tune them, or use existing pre-trained models. Many organizations should focus on the second, start from pre-trained and tune them. Number three, relatedly, per a survey, most organizations understand they aren't capable of training their own LLMs from scratch, at least at this point. Number four, it will likely take any organization around three months at least to train their own LLM from scratch. Parallel training and throwing money at the problem can only take you so far, and you need a lot of high-quality data to train an LLM from scratch, and a lot of money. Number five, there's a trend towards more people exploring and leveraging models that aren't so, so you know, quote-unquote large, that have fewer parameters. They can often perform specific tasks better than general large parameter models. You know, Scott Note, I actually saw somebody talking about small language models. (laughs) Number six, 
Similarly, there's a trend towards organizations exploring more domain-specific models instead of going with the general-purpose models like a chat GPT. Number seven, potentially controversial, machines have given humanity scalability through predictability and reliability. But Gen AI inherently lacks predictability. You have to treat Gen AI, Gen AI like working with a person, and that means less inherent trust in their responses. Number eight, generative AI is definitely not the right approach to all problems. As always, you have to understand your trade-offs. If you don't feed your Gen AI the right information, it will give you bad answers. It only knows what it has been told. Number nine, always start from the problem you are trying to solve rather than the approach you are trying to use. Then evaluate if Gen AI is the right approach to that problem. It's simple, fundamental stuff, but it's crucial to remember. Start with the problem before the proposed solution. Number 10, many people are leaping to use Gen AI because their past approaches to certain problems, they just haven't worked. So this is a new approach. Maybe, you know, they're, they're excited that they might be able to tackle something that hasn't worked in the past. So, so dig into those pains. Gen AI may or may not be the right approach, but either way, it can be great for surfacing persistent challenges that people just thought they might never be able to solve. Number 11, leverage people's enthusiasm for Gen AI to have deeper conversations about general business challenges. It can really start to highlight friction points across organizational boundaries and who is responsible for what. You know, Scott note here, but as the data team, be careful not to try to fix the entire organization. That's not what you are responsible for. Number 12, and finally, right now, despite all the hype, most organizations are still at most in small-scale POCs around Gen AI. There is less of an initial focus on return investment versus what capabilities Gen AI might unlock, but there is also a focus on what risks Gen AI may introduce. Despite the hype, Many to most organizations are still really doing their diligence. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got May Shu here, who's a technologist and, you know, in consultancy at ThoughtWorks. But to be clear, she's only representing her own views. And we're going to have another episode around generative AI, but like really a lot of, you know, May is involved with a lot of these conversations of people wanting to use generative AI for everything. And so we're going to talk about where it fits, where it doesn't, like how do you actually build your foundation to do generative AI well versus not where people are trying to throw generative AI at, at all of their problems and how to assess where generative AI is good versus not when it's a good fit and how to have that conversation around when it's not the right fit, but still keep that enthusiasm because, you know, especially now 
we've got more budget for data work. We've got this thing, but how do we direct it into the thing where we can still leverage this enthusiasm, but um, you know, do it in a way that we're, we're going to drive returns, not just do generative AI for the sake of generative AI. So, uh, but before we jump into that, May, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Sure. Uh, thanks, God. I think I will normally would introduce myself as a technologist as well as a consultant, because that's basically what I've been doing for my 12 and a half years. So I actually started my career as a C, C++ developer working on embedded uh, Linux systems. So that was fun. And um, most recently, I think, uh, I think in the past two and a half years, I have joined SolWorks as a consultant and has a pleasure working with different organizations doing digital transformation, tech advisory, this type of work. So data is, of course, a big part around that. So, yeah, I would like to share some of my uh, view regarding to how, how did we um, um, handle the interaction between gen- generative AI as well as data mesh. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, and I think just even with data, even outside of data mesh, it's just one of those things of it's, it's, this is such a hot topic and people, again, are just trying to, to rush into this. So let's talk about that kind of rushing in when you don't have that foundation built. So what are you seeing when you're talking to people around this, uh, when they're trying to jump into this with the weak foundation, right? When they don't know how to do their data work well, when they don't have clean data, like how, and how are you seeing people actually leveraging data mesh to, to get there? So let's start with the kind of like what are you seeing as kind of the failure cases as people going in? And is that more hallucination? Is that trying to throw one model at everything? Like, is it that they're approaching the practices wrong? Is it that their their data is bad and so they get bad answers? Or is it kind of all of the above? All right. That's a good question. I would like to actually approach this uh, from the um, adoption trends around organization. How do they use generative AI this day? So the first is there are really three patterns. If you look in organization, how do they use a generative AI? How do they step into this field? So the first one is really how to build your own large language model from the scratch. So this is a space where most of, of the organization actually won't be able to afford to do because of the cost, because of the complexity, as well as the capability requirement. The second option is actually to fine tune the pre-trained large language model so which is a bit easier compared with the first option. The third option is actually to use the pre-trained large language model directly. So it's commonality across these three models. It's basically, around, if you look into this, it's a data, right? We talk about large language model, so we have to train the large language model with the data. So the, the thinking, the hypothesis around language, large language model is it generates similar data according to the data that you train there. So that's basically like a self-explanatory. Like if you don't have, with your organization, if you don't have existing good quality data and solid data architecture, you just won't be able to take advantage of the power of large language model. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I liked what you were saying there as well of so many people in data in general want to build things from scratch. But like, what are you seeing when people are trying to build that from scratch? And, and 
you said, you know, most people don't have the capability to do that. That doesn't mean they don't have the desire to do it and they don't, they're trying to. So like, how do you think about having that conversation with somebody and going, Hey, you're not ready for this or the, the, you know, cause the juice isn't worth the squeeze. The, the cost isn't worth the benefit of doing this versus, you know, using these pre-trained LLMs. And then after that, I'd like to even get into that conversation of how do you find the right LLM for what you're trying to accomplish. But let's start with the, like, how do you have that conversation of, I know that you think that you want to train everything from scratch, but it's not the right fit. And, and is it that they don't have the data? Is it that they don't have the time? Is it that they don't have the expertise? Like, you know, I just kind of want to get into that conversation, how you're having that conversation with folks. Yeah, I think that you actually touch a bit of everything and that I'm going to touch because I think in the conversation, we we actually had a um, used to date a survey with some of the people's organizations who are interested to step in generative AI, just forward looking to say, well, do you look your organization's adoption approach into that path? And actually, and the survey data tells us most of what organizations clearly really uh, realize the bar in order to train your like a uh, large language model from scratch. They really just like to say it's not feasible for me. And so I think one of the typical example we share with people is around how long does it actually take to train a GPT three model? It takes like a an entire three months and with large volume of data. And most of like, I think that's just like, do you have, does your organization have the largest volume of data? Because currently if we're looking to GPT-3 is basically, it's using all the open available data of the internet in order to train GPT-3. So like, it's just like, does your organization have that volume data to, to do that? And the other one is around, um, I haven't got an exact number around how much will that cost, but it's just thinking around full trend that uh, such a model with uh, billions of parameters and just like the cost. And I'm actually quite keen just to figure that out, like what is the exact cost to train that. I think we also, um, if you read news, you probably read news about open AIs looking to commercially, how can they self-sustain themselves because like to say, the the commercial um the cost of like a keep running and fine tuning the model it's just a huge yeah and and so one question I had in there where you said it's three months is that three months of data or no matter what it's going to take three months to train the model because I I you know I'm always thinking of distributed systems you just throw more systems at it you just distribute it further is it that you need this huge amount of data or is it just no matter what it's going to take that long to train the model. I think it's um, the time um, that we're talking about the three months is actually related with uh, several different uh, parameters related with that, right? The volume, the more volume data that you need to train and the more time it costs. And then like, and the other one is around existing algorithm that's actually like, we talk about distributed system, but like how much does uh, like limiting there, right? Just like how much distributed, how much, like a parallel training you could do in the same time. So that's all like, I say that's all context-based. It's not a absolute number, but it's just to say, um, if we look into how does OpenAI actually train its JPT-3, so that's basically some historic data. Yeah, I guess I, uh, that kind of shows my naivety around 
training because I guess I am thinking of, oh, you could just do a lot of this stuff in parallel, but so much of it is sequential that you need to do that. And, and so um, when you're having that conversation with people, does does that like actually resonate with them? Because I, I've had this conversation around, hey, your organization isn't ready for data mesh. And they'll they'll kind of nod at me and go, oh, okay, thanks. And then they just plow forward and try and do data mesh and they're not ready. And so like, are you finding that people are still just trying to, to go forward and do it or that you've got engineers that are like, no, I want to train my own model. And, and you know, or, or do we find people that are training very, very smallish LLMs? Is that something that's that's more of a possibility where you can have considerably less data, considerably less cost. Like, are, are you finding that this stuff resonates with people? And are you finding that people are are maybe not large language models, but medium language models or small language models? I don't know the actual terminology you'd use there. Yeah, uh, I think that actually that's um, that's another trend that we observe in the organ uh, in the industry, right? It's actually like it's um, so one of the trend, uh, I think, is. Um, basically, if you look into how the trend in large language model is around, like to say, you just get bigger and bigger. As looking into the the tokens is around, it's basically like how big can you go with the bigger size models, and this is not impact only. Just it's talking about, uh, do you have enough training tokens to support the ever large uh parameters come to bear. The other one is uh, you might, it's a similar to data actually with the infrastructure required to support such large parameter models become a cubersome issue. I think one of the things you might say some of the organizations like uh, Netflix actually start to setting up uh, some team called like a machine learning infrastructure team actually just purely not only and having the data science to, like, to help them actually just focus on the models rather than uh, like managing infrastructure as, as well. So that was interesting. But I, it's, if we look into the community, so the community actually have been thinking about whether there were um, better ways to get uh, like better performing and capable models without going into uh, large parameter models. So... Uh, I would say in like um, if we look into the most recent models from Llama and Hacking Face, so which are like specialized in the uh, open sourcing like large language models, the models is actually release like Zephyr and Mistral Seven B models. Actually, they are able to perform in certain specific like tasks better than large models. So, so this is a really interesting area because basically I like to say, uh, we need to explore. I think there's a trend and we see some hopes. So that's likely you can get a highly capable model to fit into with a, some like a smaller models. Doesn't have to be large language model. Yeah. So Madhav Srinath was on a, a previous episode talking about Gen AI as well. And he was saying that this is what he's seeing is that People are, you know, one, that these smaller models that are very, very targeted are being updated sometimes multiple times daily. So, you know, going out and just taking the uh, the open source model and then maybe, like you said, that option two of just training it 
a little bit more on your data getting, you know, they, they've already trained it up to 85, 90% of the way. So you just have to train it the last 10% on your own data, but that they've got like, he was saying there was one that um, was specific to answering a couple of questions. And then um, there was a second one that was there to check for hallucinations against uh, another to, against LLMs. And so it would be like, Hey, what is the specific, uh, hallucination rate? Or is this sensible? Is this reasonable? Like, let's, let's give you a confidence interval around is the answer. It just gave you something that's real. Cause you know, chat GPT has the, the fun thing of, um, when people ask it about scientific research, it'll just make up research papers. Right. And, and it's like, that doesn't exist. You know, somebody was like, yeah, they they literally in my question to the to chat GPT, it made up a paper by myself that didn't exist. But the the title of the paper was sounded like exactly something I, I, I would write or maybe should write. And they were like, oh, maybe I should write this, even though it doesn't exist. But so so are you seeing that that it, it sounds like that's a good practice but are you seeing that people are actually doing that? Are people aware that they should be doing that? Or is that something that's still like kind of more nascent? Yeah, I, I think this actually reminds me uh, one of the things I keep talking. It's a, like a, a bit of an interesting controversial thing. So uh, I think people, we have been working with machines for many years. So the reason that we adopt machines is because machines can help us on those repetitive tasks and doing that consistently with like uh, predictability and reliability. And interestingly, actually with large language model, generative AI, so like let's get back into the course of AI, right? It was the entire purpose of AI is actually to make machine act like people. So, and now and the example you actually just caught up is, um, very interesting example. So it's basically like to say we actually want to have both, right? We want to machine have the um the benefits, advantage of being both a people and a machine. And I think one of the these things at this moment for generative AI, I think the the most effective approach working with generative AI is you need to treat that like working with people. I think that's a really interesting insight that that. The benefit, if you want the benefits of both working with a machine and people, you're going to have the drawbacks of both. So you have to be like cognizant of both. Um, how are you having these conversations with folks about like getting them ready for actually doing this, right? Like so that they are like, I mean, let's let's go into that, like uh, picking a, a, a the right language model and how are how are you getting them to not rush into trying to do this? when their data isn't ready for this? Yeah, I think that <laughs> this is the interesting one. I think this is more, um, you actually previously mentioned around like people are trying to use generative AI for everything. I think this coming to this, I normally just approach to say, we need to have a good understanding around the problem and then like just break down the problem, right? For, for the part, I like to say, if you would like to, uh, like for predictability, consistency, accuracy, so that's probably would be the space, uh, probably not generative AI, you might want to 
looking for the traditional like machine learning, deep learning, predictive AI, all those kind of things to help you in that space. So rather than having everything uh, like solved by generative AI, you're looking to say, what are the specific just to find, find out the, the, the right fit? The other thing is actually have a focus around um, the, the problem that you're solving rather than focusing on the tech solutions. Just focusing on the um, just picking to ensure you at, we actually have a good understanding around the business problem that we are solving. So uh, rather than to say, hey, it's a tech solution because non-generative AI is popular. Now we're just going to use generative AI to solve everything. So the other thing I actually found it's yeah, it's it's quite useful. It's really around to um, instead of say, hey, Jin, I won't be the right solution for this. So this one, you have to build a shared understanding around what's the decision framework we're using here, just uh, to include all the related factors around that, such like cost, reliability, performance, uh, time frame, capability, just everything. Put that in there and just read generative AI solution together with all the other options you have and just make sure you actually choose the right option, uh, right solution for the business problem. And when you're having that conversation or people, are you finding that people lean into that conversation? Because, you know, or, or maybe, I guess maybe we could start with how do you help them assess if generative AI, you know, you kind of talked about that predictability and and that scalability and that, you know, uh, repeatability and things like that, uh, that's not generative AI because it is like working with people and people are a little chaotic and things like that could be more fun, but it's not necessarily, um, as you said, so, so predictable. But like, how do you help people assess? Is this a business process problem where this isn't about data or is this about data, but it's not generative AI is not the right solution. Like, how do you have, do you have any tips for other people out there when they're having these conversations or they're, especially if they're having this conversation with somebody that's at the CEO level, that's not as much of a data person where you go like, Hey, I get this. Like we want to use it for certain things, but this isn't the right fit. Like how can you help them assess that and have that conversation. I know those are that's a very, very big question because it's very two very large topics of assess and conversation. Yeah, I, I think this is a definitely it 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 was a long answer to that, but I'll try to um, answer that in a short uh, phrase. So what you have called out actually happened quite often. So we often started conversation with an uh, interest party to say, we want to talk about generative AI. We want to talk with you how how could we use generative AI to solve the problem. So our approach is like, of course, that is like this. Can you tell us more around what's a, bit, a problem that you try to solve using this solution? Just like rather than to say focus on the solution, just bring that back to the problem that you try to solve. And then uh, we started talking about to say, how do you know this is a problem? What kind of options have you tried before? So just to build up more context around that, then very quickly. So it's just like to say, it's just, um, I think it's very similar to the lean approach around like a five Y uh, thing, or just like you could start with that, just like try very quickly with it. Hey, this is probably not a, like a generative AI, this might be AI. So we continue the conversation, just to try to understand more around it. 
oh, then my father, then I started to uh, ask a question like, can you tell me like uh, how the, uh, like, do you understand uh, for your organization, what kind of data do you have? And well, well, do you manage them? Do you, what's your proper data architecture in that space? And how, how do you manage, uh, what's the infrastructure? Do you have strategy around that? Then actually, like, around, like to say, Oh no, I I don't I don't have like to say our organization. We have a lot of data, but like if we talk about good quality data, no, we're not there. And if you are not mentioning about like a data architecture, no, it's everywhere. So we actually don't know what kind of data we're having. It's coming to a conversation around like a data platform. It's actually a data platform issue. Then we'll continue this conversation. So that was really, really fun, right? You just keep <laughs> diving. Then you find out, oh, actually, that's because of, like uh, technology and business doesn't work together, like uh, operational. And then it's all like to say operational. There are different silos in there. So people are actually acting, um, working towards different metrics in the organization. There's no aligned goals as a business. Then it's actually end up kind of like a digital transformation problem. So you're having that like we have to transform the uh, way of working of people, and you have to organize organization differently. So this one like it's around like it's actually a really fun conversation. But what I want to call out is just like to say, and the positive side of the, like people tend to use generative right, for everything. It's just like, and um, that actually means. People are seeing the potential on generative AI. They're willing to explore the new options to solve some of the existing problems, which they tend to believe it can't be solved before, right? It's just opportunity window. It's just another opportunity window. You actually get people's attention on those like long-existing problems. Yeah, I think that's I think a lot of what you're talking about there is and it's very difficult to to just say universally, here is how you leverage the enthusiasm and keep going. But I think a lot of what you're talking about there is just leaning into the conversation. What what are you trying to achieve? Why? And that when you have that that conversation about what are you trying to achieve and why, you can start to pull, you know, back in. I, I think, you know, I was at a, a conference recently and somebody was like, well, how do you have these conversations? And, and I was, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I didn't realize that Lean also gave that five whys. I was like, you know, be your five-year-old self. Why, 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 why? And, and I think that you can help to dig people in and, and they, are you finding that people actually see the, the challenge for themselves? Or are you still having to kind of guide them? Because where I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations with folks is, all of a sudden, our our you know board of directors, our senior leaders went from yeah yeah this data stuff is important to really leaning forward and going you know this is the thing that's going to completely change us, but they're not really aware of the path from you know going from point A to point point Z, and they just want to kind of jump to you know point Z and not build any of that foundation, and so everything kind of falls apart. So. Are you finding when you have these deeper conversations that people's enthusiasm stays high or are you seeing that they're starting to realize that there are way too many challenges or like because I'm, I'm trying to give people out there a little bit of a pathway to take what people are, are so enthusiastic about and get enough funding to build those foundations well, <laughs> because if those foundations aren't built well, you're 
it's not going to go anywhere. So like, you know, I'm I'm asking you to solve one of the most difficult problems in data in, in, you know, a a 40 minute conversation. But like, how are you are you finding that that people's enthusiasm still stays high when you start to dig in? I I think this is a definitely very interesting one because uh, I found people's enthusiasm is not only related with the problem itself, but it's also related with their like their like the boundaries of their responsibility and roles. Because as we navigate through the problem, you navigate through this um chain of problems that you're going to do, try go to the root cause to actually to make sure we address root cause problem, you actually achieve the maximum value from there. And actually quite often you started with a stakeholder, right? With the original problem was it says in, for example, you normally start your generative AI conversation with a stakeholder who is in charging of emerging tech. But as you um, just narrow down the lines, what do you end up coming with data? And according to the org structure, it might be coming to a different stakeholder, which is no longer that person's responsibility. I'm almost thinking you're you're talking of it as as an internal conversational lubricant, right? Where like these conversations weren't happening. People were frustrated on one end or the other. And this gives them that leg up. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's kind of like that. So this one is around like, um, one of the biggest uh, things I think we need to focus on in order to do not lose the momentum is around how do we create that conversation around relevant? So why do I need to care, right? It seems like also from all structure personnel, it's not my responsibility. And you need to create that story around why do you need to care about this? And create that relevance is rather than to say, um, uh, like I say, yeah, it's no longer my responsibility. I don't, I don't need to care about that anymore. So just create that relevance. The other one is around um, be able to just, we actually spend quite a little bit of time when we're working with people is around to help people understand the value of this and be able to justify this. So it doesn't, I think we will always say, hey, uh, it's just like if we, us as a technologist, struggle to justify the value um, of the sense that we propose, that just mean it's a problem itself, right? Uh, and if we can't even justify the value of the work that we are proposing, if we can't even justify the value of data platform, how do you expect the business people and someone who is not close to the world, who doesn't understand the technology in in depth to justify the value around. So I think that will be the two points I want to highlight to say, hey, in order to consider this, these are the things we need to help our stakeholder a lot. Yeah, I, I think that I, I like what you're saying as well of this creates the opportunity for conversations that had kind of died historically. Right. Where, where are these things that you were able to dig into or that you wanted to dig into? You couldn't because people are like, that's not my that's not my responsibility. I don't care about that or I'm not going to do that. And this gets people a little bit more excited to lean in. And, and are you finding that justification is easier or harder when it comes to to Gen AI, large language models and things like that? It, because it's so early 
you know, there's the justification of this is exciting, this could be transformative, but there's also the, well, you don't know how to do this. Are you finding that that's still kind of that, that um, we're still in that early phase of the enthusiasm has, uh, is still exceeding the, um, the kind of undermining and the, you know, the justify it to me more. Are you finding that that's kind of balanced or how are you thinking about that in these conversations? Because we're like six months into everybody being gaga for, you know, generative AI. Yeah, I, I think it's actually, it's a bit harder. The reason for that is we need to look at the life cycle of this technology. So if we normally, I think in SOAS, we normally say it is uh, like uh, the technology is at in exploit, exploit or like a skill sustain phase, right? There are different phases of technology in that phase. I'll probably say generative AI is definitely in its early stage. So most of organizations are very much just experimenting, running POCs, and just try to understand what does this mean, uh, like what does this mean to my organization? What kind of change it will uh, bring to my organization, as well as what kind of threat it will introduce to my organization too. I think most of one organization today are in that phase of trying to understand more, build more understanding, as well as just running some experiment to validate their hypothesis. So that's basically what they are. So I think in most of the like uh, cases, the driving force are not actually around return on investment yet. It's more around just around uh, a small scale of experiment just to validate the hypothesis of the organization. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was just going to kind of ask that on like, when you think about should we train our own large language model or not, how do you do a POC on something that's, you know, going to cost many millions of dollars in three months when you're like, I don't know if we should do this for our entire organization. Are you finding... People are just kind of going, eh, we'll just use the pre-trained, like the already, you know, just API call to open AI or whatever. Or are you finding that people are more settling on that we'll do the smaller scale, like pre-trained models that we just have to extend and train a little bit further? Like, are you finding that that people are being willing to be uh, reasonable on that? Or, I, I mean, I know you probably don't have, you know, 800 of these conversations to be able to fall back on, but are you finding that people are are doing POCs from like the actual proof of concept or are they just trying to really jump in? I actually think um, what I have seen, I think that people, the organization have approached this in a very logical, sensible way. So like to say, I see uh, two patterns, right? As in most normal organizations, when they're looking into how can I leverage large language model for my like to, for example, improve customer support, improve internal productivity, those kind of things. So they are just able to, because most of that actually can be done with pre-trained large language model as well. So they're basically just adding a bit of a proprietary data and then can kick it off. And those another actually uh, directions people are going is actually the rise of like a domain specific large language model. So if we look into like a GPT 3.5, GPT 4, and all the different models, so the, like they all general general purpose large language model. 
So we actually start to see the like uh, a rise of like, for example, like uh, financial specific large language models, and people will be able to leverage that. Then the media like say the uh, specific around data around that. So I have to say for just if you are. I think this is more around from business model point of view. So how does people think large language model could benefit the evolution of the business model? As like I'd say, if we take the example of like a public sector or like financial service, they actually historically they hold a lot of uh, like high quality data in that space. And it's really around how do you turn that set of data actually becoming the um, value generator for the organization. So especially like you look into how can you like monetize those data, especially in a B2B sense, right? So like how can I um, just uh, do this kind of data sharing? How can you uh, share this data in a way that is beneficial to the organization and those kind of things? I think this that's actually another trend that is going on. So I actually find, yeah, I think in short, just to find people approaching this in a very sensible way. Well, and it's funny because I think three months ago, if we had this conversation, I don't know that you would have still, you would have said that we're seeing people do it in a sensible way because there was kind of this gold rush. And I think, I, I think, you know, I, I, I talk every once in a while about Demetrios Brinkman, who runs the MLOps community and now is doing a bunch of LLM ops um, conferences and things like that. Because we are seeing people quickly sharing the good and the bad and having those practical conversations because we may be able to really show a lot of value from data work where we haven't been able to prove that out historically. And so we want people to do this right, right? We don't want a bunch of these uh, failed, like just trying money grabs and then yet another data thing that didn't work out because it was focused too much on the technology instead of the use case. So, uh, but I, I would love to, to kind of, you know, give you space to react to that, but also wrap in as we're heading in, into uh, the, the conclusion here about where are you seeing the good places to think about generative AI versus not, especially around data mesh? Like, are you seeing that as things that you would use as part of your data mesh platform, whether for the uh, producer or the consumer or both? Are you seeing it as, you know, how you need data mesh to really feed high quality data into your generative AI solution? Like, are you seeing generative AI on top of data mesh versus data mesh leveraging generative AI and like how you think about having that that conversation with people? I know it's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's actually a very long question. I think the, the, the first part around that, I think once the thing I didn't mentioned previously is around actually with uh, people start to build a domain-specific large language model. It actually is changing internet in a fundamental way. It's actually changing because internet is initially designed to allow people to uh, making humans' knowledge open and accessible to all, right? So with, I'm not sure whether you have seen the news actually from X, like a Twitter, right? Twitter, they actually have a recently uh, did a rate limiting product update. They basically say, hey, 
at high level, we want to work to prevent both and other bad actors from scrapping people's public Twitter data to build AI models. And second, to manipulating people and conversation on the platform in various ways. So this one is actually like now, if we really look into some of the content-rich platforms, like X Twitter, um, Quora, LinkedIn, those kind of content-rich platforms. So like, you know, I think there's a follow-up actually action from LinkedIn as well because they're all changing this rich limiting around what people can access to the previous public data. And now it's actually going to be limited access and you need to pay for that. So I think that's actually another fundamental change that actually generative AI is introduced to the entire ecosystem. So this is a really, yeah, I think this is really interesting. I'm just wondering like how many, like a pretty, how we can, it's an overall, I'm curious to say the overall trend of free data information is going to be reducing given generative AI there. So that's just one of the interesting part. I found it quite interesting. Yeah. I'm keen to watch follow the trend. Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, it's 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 sad if our information infrastructure as the uh, you know, the human race uh, kind of crumbles simply because people are trying to scrape everything from everything else. But well hopefully it doesn't go down that path, but it looks like everybody's really trying to to wall off as many gardens as possible and, you know, the general public are are getting lower and lower quality access to data uh, because things are put behind more and more walls. And so, you know, the actual sharing of information is, is uh, hopefully we don't have that, but, you know, uh, internally, most companies shouldn't have to have that same problem, but maybe that, that ends up creating a much bigger market for these um, specific LLMs uh, that are domain specific, but we'll, we'll, we'll see on that. But, um, so we've, we've covered a whole bunch of things. Uh, is there anything we didn't talk about specifically that you wanted to, or any way that, you, that you'd want to wrap up the episode? Um, yeah, I think the, 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 the what we're talking about the data mesh is really, um, important to enable, empower generative AI, uh, just like a, without good quality of data. So even with the generative AI in space, you might be able to, you might not be able to take advantage of that. And so is, I think the, the old thing around like a garbage in, garbage out still applies. And if there's one focus we want organization to focus on is we need to continue, like how can we make data like easily accessible, interoperable, as well, just like because data sharing is becoming more, more and more, and also how can we make it in a, like a privacy aware fashion? Because I think like a security ethical use of data is uh, remain a big challenge. I think uh, when we talk about generative AI, hallucination is around like, and how do we make sure that the, the right data shared responsibly uh, responsibly is still a key challenge for us all. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's somebody was. Uh, I think it might have been Madhav was was talking about that um, some uh, LLMs or, or you know models are being used to say, "Hey, um, can this data actually be shared with this person?" Right? Was this was this something that was um, that was uh, in compliance with privacy and things like that? So I, I, I'm wondering if we'll just have models on top of models on top of models, and so. 
the the best companies are going to be able to leverage this and the other companies are constantly going to be violating privacy and getting fined and things like that. And so will it create another model of of another layer of the haves versus the have nots versus can we democratize this? I know Shamak has talked about data mesh is about trying to democratize the access to data for more and more organizations. But, you know, it's still only the largest organizations can really do data mesh. So it's, it's you know, there, there's there's a lot of to be determined out there. <laughs> yeah, I think we actually see some uh, positive moment, for example, and we talk about AWS Bandrock. So they have building this like a privacy security building solution as part of the offering, so which is a positive mode. But I think the others, it's more than just like one cloud pro one when they're thinking about this, right? It's the entire industry. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, mate, this has been such a, a, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where Where's the best place to do that? Anything specific you'd like them following up about? Um, yeah, I think you can always follow me up on LinkedIn. So you can message me there or the other way is uh, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> X, I think the bit. I'm still yeah. not getting used to X. So, uh, so I, I'm I'm generally across around tech strategy. How do you skill engineer and uh, organization digital transformation? Those kind of topics reach me out on those. Awesome. Well, again, May, thank you so much for your time here today. And as well, thank you, everyone out there for listening. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, May Shu, Head of Technology for APAC Digital Engineering at ThoughtWorks. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs, but I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.